0: To this Uvila audio presentation of *A Tramp Abroad* by Mark Twain, Volume Five, Chapter Sixteen, an ancient legend of the Rhine. The last legend reminds one of the Lorelei, a legend of the Rhine. There is a song called the Lorelei. Germany is rich in folk songs, and the words and airs of several of them are peculiarly beautiful but the Lorelei is the people's favorite. I could not endure it at first, but by and by it began to take hold of me, and now there is no tune which I like so well. It is not possible that it is much known in America, else I should have heard it there. The fact that I have never heard it there is evidence that there are others in my country who have fared likewise. For the sake of these men, I mean to print the words and music in this chapter, and I will refresh the reader's memory by printing the legend of the Lorelei too. I have it by me in the Legends of the Rhine done into English by the wildly gifted Garnham Bachelor of Arts. I printed the legend partly to refresh my own memory, too, for I have never read it before. The Legend Lore was a water nymph who used to sit on a high rock called Lie in the Rhine. To lure boatmen to destruction in a furious rapid, which marred the channel at that spot. She so bewitched them with her plaintive songs and her wonderful beauty that they forgot everything else to gaze up at her, and so they presently drifted among the broken reefs and were lost. In those old, old times the Count Bruno lived in a great castle near there with his son, the Count Hermann, a youth of twenty. Hermann had heard a great deal about the beautiful Lore and had finally fallen very deeply in love with her without having yet seen her. So he used to wander the neighborhood of the Lye evenings with his zither and express his longing in low singing, as Garnham says. On one of these occasions, suddenly there hovered around the top of the rock a brightness of unequaled clearness and color, which in increasingly smaller circles thickened, was the enchanting figure of the beautiful Lore an unintentional cry of joy escaped the youth he let his zither fall and with extended arms he called out the name of the inimical being who seemed to stoop lovingly to him and beckon to him in a friendly manner indeed if his ear did not deceive him she called his name with unutterable sweet whispers proper to love beside him with delight the youth lost his senses and sank senseless to the earth after that, he was a changed person. He went dreaming about, thinking only of his fairy and caring for naught else in the world. The old count saw with affliction this changement in his son, whose cause he could not divine, and tried to divert his mind into cheerful channels, but to no purpose. Then the old count used authority. He commanded the youth to betake himself to the camp. Obedience was promised, and Garnum says. It was on the evening before his departure, as he wished still once to visit the lie, and offer to the nymph of the Rhine his sighs, the tones of his zither and his songs. He went in his boat, this time accompanied by a faithful squire down the stream. The moon shed her silvery light over the whole country. The steep banked mountains appeared in the most fantastical shapes, and the high oaks on either side bowed their branches on Hermann's passing. As soon as he approached the lie and was aware of the surf waves, his attendant was seized with an inexpressible anxiety and begged permission to land, but the knight swept the strings of his guitar and sang, Once I saw thee in dark night, in supernatural beauty bright, of light rays was the figure wove to share its light locked hair strove. Thy garment color waved dove by thy hand the sign of love thy eyes sweet enchantment reign to me o entrancement o wert thou but my sweetheart how willingly thy love to part with delight i should be bound to thy rocky house in deep ground that herman should have gone to that place at all was not wise that he should have gone with such a song as that in his mouth was a most serious mistake. The lower lie did not call his name in unutterable sweet whispers this time. No, that song naturally worked an instant and thorough changement in her. Not only that, but it stirred the bowels of the whole afflicted region round about there, for scarcely had these tones sounded everywhere. There began tumult and sound, as if voices above and below the water. On the lie rose flames. The fairy stood above, as that time, and beckoned with her right hand clearly and urgently to the infatuated knight, while with a staff in her left she called the waves to her service. They began to mount heavenward. The boat was upset, mocking every exertion. The waves rose to the gunwale, and, splitting on the hard stones, the boat broke into pieces. The youth sank into the depths, but the squire was thrown on shore by a powerful wave. The bitterest things have been said about the Lorelei during many centuries, but surely her conduct upon this occasion entitles her to our respect. One feels drawn tenderly toward her and is moved to forget her many crimes and remember only the good deed that crowned and closed her career. The fairy was never more seen, but her enchanting tones have often been heard. In the beautiful, refreshing, still nights of spring, when the moon pours her silver light over the country, the listening shipper hears from the rushing of the waves the echoing clang of a wonderfully charming voice which sings a song from the crystal castle, and with sorrow and fear he thinks on the young Count Hermann seduced by the nymph. Here is the music in the German Wars by Heinrich Heine, This song has been a favorite in Germany for forty years and will remain a favorite always. Maybe. I have a prejudice against people who print things in a foreign language and add no translation. When I am the reader and the author is me able to do the translating myself, he pays me quite a nice compliment. But if he would do the translating for me, I would try to get along without the compliment. If I were at home, no doubt, I could get a translation of this poem— but I am abroad and can't. Therefore, I will make a translation myself. may not be a good one, for poetry is out of my line, but it will serve my purpose, which is to give the un-German young girl a jingle of words to hang the tune on to until she can get hold of a good version made by someone who is a poet and knows how to convey the poetical thought from one language to another. The Lower Lie I cannot divine what it meaneth, this haunting, nameless pain. A tale of the bygone ages keeps brooding through my brain. The faint air cools in the gloaming, and peaceful flows the Rhine. The thirsty summits are drinking, the sunsets flooding wine. The loveliest maiden is sitting, high-throned in yon blue air. Her golden jewels are shining, she combs her golden hair. She combs with a comb that is golden and sings a weird refrain that steeps in a deadly enchantment the listener's ravished brain. The doomed in his drifting shallop is tranced with the sad sweet note. He sees not the yawning breakers, he sees but the maid alone. The pitiless billows engulf him, so perish sailor and bark, and this with her baleful singing. Is lies gruesome work? I have a translation by Garnham, Bachelor of Arts, and the Legends of the Rhine, but it would not answer the purpose I mentioned above, because the measure is too nobly irregular. It doesn't fit the tune snugly enough. In places it hangs at the ends too far, and in other places one runs out of words before he gets to the end of the bar. Still, Garnham's translation has high merits, and I am not dreaming of leaving it out of my book. I believe this poet is wholly unknown in America and England. I take peculiar pleasure in bringing him forward, because I consider that I have discovered him. The Lorelei Translated by L. W. Garnham, B. A. I do not know what it signifies. THAT I AM SO SORROWFUL, A FABLE OF OLD TIMES SO TERRIFIES, LEAVES MY HEART SO THOUGHTFUL. THE AIR IS COOL AND IT DARKENS, AND CALMLY FLOWS THE RHINE, THE SUMMIT OF THE MOUNTAIN HEARKENS, IN EVENING SUNSHINE LINE. THE MOST BEAUTIFUL MAIDEN ENTRANCES, ABOVE WONDERFULLY THERE, HER BEAUTIFUL GOLDEN ATTIRE GLANCES, She combs her golden hair. With golden comb so lustrous, And thereby a song sings, It has a tone so wondrous That powerful melody rings. The shipper in the little ship, It affects with woe's sad might. He does not see the rocky clip, He only regards dreaded height. I believe the turbulent waves Swallow at last shipper and boat, She with her singing craves, all to visit her magic moat. No translation could be closer. He has got all the facts, and in their regular order, too. There is not a statistic wanting. It is as succinct as an invoice. That is what a translation ought to be. It should exactly reflect the thought of the original. You can't sing above Wonderfully There because it simply won't go to the tune without damaging the singer, but it is a most clingingly exact translation of Dort oben wunderbar. It fits like a blister. Mr. Garnham's reproduction has other merits, a hundred of them, but it's not necessary to point them out. They will be detected. No one with a specialty can hope to have a monopoly at it, even Gardam has a rival. Mr. X had a small pamphlet with him, which he had bought while on a visit to Munich. It was entitled, A Catalogue of Pictures in the Old Pinacotech, and was written in a peculiar kind of English. Here are a few extracts. An evening landscape in the foreground near a pond and a group of white beeches, is leading in a footpath animated by travelers. A learned man in a cynical and torn dress holding an open book in his hand. St. Bartholomew and the Executioner with the knife to fulfill the martyr. Portrait of a Young Man A long while this picture was thought to be Bindi Altoviti's portrait. Now somebody will again have it to be the self-portrait of Raphael. Susan, bathing, surprised by the two old men in the background the lapidation of the condemned lapidation is good by the way it is much more elegant than stoning st rocco sitting in a landscape with an angel who looks at his plague sores whilst the dog the bread in his mouth attends him spring the goddess flora sitting behind her a fertile valley perfused by river A beautiful bouquet animated by Maybugs, etc. A warrior in armor with Giuseppe's pipe in his hand leans against a table and blows the smoke far away of himself. A Dutch landscape along a navigable river which perfuses it till to the background. Some peasants singing in a cottage. A woman lets drink a child out of a cup. St. John's Head is a boy, painted in fresco on a brick. I think he beats a tile. A young man of the Riccio family, his hair cut off right at the end, dressed in black with the same cap, attributed to Raphael, but the signation is false. The Virgin Holding the Infant is very painted in the manner of Sassoferrato a larder with greens and dead game animated by a cook-maid and two kitchen-boys. However, the English of this catalogue is at least as happy as that which distinguishes an inscription upon a certain picture in Rome. To wit, Revelations, View, St. John in Patterson's Island. But meantime, the raft is moving on. Chapter 17 Why Germans Wear Spectacles A mile or two above Eberbach, we saw a peculiar ruin projecting above the foliage, which clothed the peak of a high and very steep hill. This ruin consisted of merely a couple of crumbling masses of masonry, which bore a rude resemblance to human faces. They leaned forward and touched foreheads and had the look of being absorbed in conversation. This ruin had nothing very imposing or picturesque about it, and there was no great deal of it. Yet it was called the Spectacular Ruin. The Legend of the Spectacular Ruin Captain of the Raft, who was as full of history as he could stick, said that in the Middle Ages a most prodigious fire-breathing dragon used to live in that region, and made more trouble than a tax collector. He was as long as a railway train, and had the customary impenetrable green scales all over him. His breath bred pestilence and conflagration, and his appetite bred famine. He ate men and cattle impartially, and was exceedingly unpopular. The German emperor of the day made the usual offer. He would grant the destroyer of the dragon any one solitary thing he might ask for for he had a surplusage of daughters, and it was customary for dragon-killers to take a daughter for pay. So the most renowned knights came from the four corners of the earth and retired down the dragon's throat one after another. A panic arose and spread. Heroes grew cautious. The procession ceased. The dragon became more destructive than ever. The people lost all hope of succor and fled to the mountains for refuge. At last Sir Wissenschaft, a poor and obscure knight out of a far country, arrived to do battle with the monster, a pitiable object he was, with his armor hanging in rags about him and his strange-shaped knapsack strapped upon his back. Everybody turned up their noses at him, and some openly jeered, but he was calm. He simply inquired of the Emperor's offer and whether it was still in force. The emperor said it was, but charitably advised him to go and hunt hares and not endanger so precious a life as his in an attempt which had brought death to so many of the world's most illustrious heroes. The tramp only asked, were any of these heroes men of science? This raised a laugh, of course, for science was despised in those days. But the tramp was not in the least ruffled. He said he might be a little in advance of his age, But no matter, science would come to be honored, some time or other. He said he would march against the dragon in the morning. Out of compassion, then, a decent spear was offered him, but he declined and said spears were useless to men of science. They allowed him to sup in the servants' hall and gave him a bed in the stables. When he started forth in the morning, thousands were gathered to see, and the emperor said, "'Do not be rash. Take a spear and leave off your knapsack.' But the tramp said, "'It's not a knapsack,' and moved on. The dragon was waiting and ready. He was breathing forth with vast volumes of sulfurous smoke and lurid blasts of flame. The ragged knight stole warily to a good position, then he unslung his cylindrical knapsack, which was simply the common fire extinguisher known to the times.' At first chance he got, he turned on his hose and shot the dragon square in the center of his cavernous mouth. Out went the fires in an instant, and the dragon curled up and died. The man had brought brains to his aid. He had reared dragons from the egg in his laboratory. He had watched over them like a mother, and patiently studied them and experimented upon them while they grew. Thus he had found out that fire was the life principle of a dragon put out the dragon's fire, and it could make steam no longer and would die. He could not put out a fire with a spear, therefore he invented the fire extinguisher. The dragon being dead, the emperor fell on the hero's neck and said, Deliverer, name your request. At the same time, beckoning out behind with his heel for a detachment of his daughters to form an advance. But the tramp gave them no observance. He simply said, "'My request is that upon me be conferred the monopoly "'of the manufacture and sale of spectacles in Germany.' "'The emperor sprang aside and exclaimed, "'This transcends all the impudence I have ever heard. "'A modest demand by my halidom! "'Why didn't you ask for the imperial revenues at once "'and be done with it?' "'But the monarch had given his word, and he kept it. "'To everybody's surprise, the unselfish monopolist, Immediately reduced the price of spectacles to such a degree that a great and crushing burden was removed from the nation. The Emperor, to commemorate this generous act and to testify his appreciation of it, issued a decree commanding everybody to buy this benefactor's spectacles and wear them, whether they needed them or not. So originated the widespread custom of wearing spectacles in Germany and as a custom once established in these old lands is imperishable, this one remains universal in the empire to this day. Such is the legend of the monopolist's once stately and sumptuous castle, now called the Spectacular Ruin. On the right bank, two or three miles below the Spectacular Ruin, we passed a noble pile of castellated buildings overlooking the water from the crest of a lofty elevation. A stretch of two hundred yards of the front high wall was heavily draped with ivy, and out of the mass of buildings within rose three picturesque old towers. The place was in fine order, and inhabited by a family of princely rank. The castle had its legend, too, but I should not feel justified in repeating it, because I doubted the truth of some of its minor details. Along in this region, a multitude of Italian laborers were blasting away the frontage of the hills to make room for a new railway. They were fifty or a hundred feet above the river. As we turned a sharp corner, they began to wave signals and shout warnings to us to look out for the explosions. It was all very well to warn us, but what could we do? You can't back a raft upstream. You can't hurry it downstream. You can't scatter out to one side when you haven't any room to speak of. You can't take to the perpendicular cliffs on the other shore when they appear to be blasting there, too. Your resources are limited, you see. There is simply nothing for it but to watch and pray. For some hours we'd been making three and a half or four miles an hour, and we were still making that. We had been dancing right along until those men began to shout. Then, for the next ten minutes, it seemed to me I had never seen a raft go so slowly. When the fire blast finally went off, we raised our umbrellas and waited for the result. No harm was done, though. None of the stones fell in the water. Another blast followed, and another, and another. Some of the rubbish fell in the water just astern of us. We ran that whole battery of nine blasts in a row and it was certainly one of the most exciting and uncomfortable weeks I have ever spent, either a ship or ashore. Of course, we frequently manned the poles and shoved earnestly for a second or so, but every time one of those spurts of dust and debris shot aloft, every man dropped his pole and looked up to get the bearings of his share of it. It was very busy times along there for a while. It appeared certain that we would perish, But even that was not the bitterest thought. No, the abjectly unheroic nature of the death, that was the sting. That, and the bizarre wording of the resulting obituary, shot with a rock on a raft. There would be no poetry written about it. None could be written about it. For example, not by war's shock or war's shaft, shot with a rock on a raft no no poet who valued his reputation would touch such a theme as that i would be distinguished as only the distinguished dead who went down to the grave unsoneted in eighteen seventy eight but we escaped and i have never regretted it the last blast was a peculiarly strong one and after the small rubbish was done raining around us we were just going to shake hands over our deliverance when a later and a larger stone came down amongst our little group of pedestrians and wrecked an umbrella. It didn't do anybody any harm, but we took to the water just the same. It seems that the heavy work of the quarries and the new railway gratings is done mainly by Italians. That was a revelation. We have the notion in our country that Italians never do heavy work at all but confine themselves to the lighter arts like organ grinding, operatic singing, and assassination. We have blundered. That is plain. All along the river, near every village, we saw little station houses for the future railway. They were finished and waiting for the rails and business. They were as trim and snug and pretty as they could be. They were always a brick or stone. They had a graceful shape with vines and flowers about them already, and around them the grass was bright and green and showed that it was carefully looked after. They were a decoration to the beautiful landscape, not an offense. Wherever one saw a pile of gravel or a pile of broken stone, it was always heaped as trimly and exactly as a new grave or a stack of cannonballs. Nothing about those stations or along the railroad or wagon road was allowed to look shabby or to be unornamental. The keeping a country in such beautiful order as Germany exhibits has a wise practical side to it, too, for it keeps thousands of people in work and bread who would otherwise be idle and mischievous. As the night shut down, the captain wanted to tie up, but I thought maybe we might make Hirschhorn, so we went on. Presently the sky became overcast and the captain came aft looking uneasy. He cast his eye aloft and then shook his head and said it was coming to a blow. My party wanted to land at once, therefore I wanted to go on. The captain said we ought to shorten sail anyway out of common prudence. Consequently the labored watch was ordered to lay on his pole. It grew quite dark now and the wind began to rise. "'and wailed through the swaying branches of the trees "'and swept our decks in fitful gusts. "'The captain shouted to the steersman on the forward log, "'How's she landing?' "'The answer came faint and hoarse from far forward. "'Noreast and by nor'east by half-east, sir. "'Let her go off a point. "'Aye, aye, sir. "'What water have you got? "'Shoal, sir, two foot large on the starboard two and a half scant on the labbard. let her go off another point ay ay sir forward men all of you lively now stand by to crowd her round the weather corner ay ay sir then followed a wild running and trampling and hoarse shouting but the forms of the men were lost in the darkness and the sounds were distorted and confused by the roaring of the wind through the shingle bundles By this time the sea was running inches high and threatening every moment to engulf the frail bark. Now came the mate hurrying aft and said, close to the captain's ear in a low agitated voice, Prepare for the worst, sir, we have sprung a leak. Heavens, where? Right aft of the second row of logs, sir. Nothing but a miracle can save us. Don't let the men know or there will be panic and mutiny. Lay her to shore and stand by to jump with the stern line the moment she touches. Gentlemen, I must look to you to second my endeavors in this hour of peril. You have hats? Go forward and bail for your lives. Down swept another mighty blast of wind clothed in spray and thick darkness. At such a moment as this came from away forward that most appalling of all cries that's ever heard at sea. Man overboard! The captain shouted, Hard a port, never mind the man, let him climb aboard or wait ashore. Another cry came down the wind. Breakers ahead! Where? Not a log's length, off her port four foot. We had groped our slippery way forward and were now bailing with the frenzy of despair when we heard the mate's terrified cry from the far aft. "'Stop that dashed bailing, or we'll be aground!' But this was immediately followed by the glad shout. "'Land aboard the starboard transom!' "'Saved!' cried the captain. "'Jump ashore! Take a turn around a tree and pass the bite aboard!' The next moment we were all on shore, weeping and embracing for joy, while the rain poured down in torrents. The captain said he had been a mariner for forty years on the Neckar, and that in that time had seen storms to make a man's cheek blanch and his pulses stop, but he had never, never seen a storm that even approached this one. How familiar that sounded, for I have been at sea a good deal, and have heard that remark from captains with a frequency accordingly. We framed in our minds the usual resolution of thanks and admiration and gratitude and took the first opportunity to vote on it and put it in writing and present it to the captain with the customary speech. We tramped through the darkness and the drenching summer rain full three miles and reached the Naturalist Tavern in the village of Hirshhorn, just an hour before midnight, almost exhausted from hardship, fatigue, and terror. I can never forget that night. The landlord was rich and therefore could afford to be crusty and disobliging. He did not at all like being turned out of his warm bed to open his house for us. But no matter. His household got up and cooked a quick supper for us, and we brewed a hot punch for ourselves to keep off the consumption. After supper and punch, we had an hour of soothing smoke while we fought the naval battle over again and voted the resolutions. Then we retired to exceedingly neat and pretty chambers upstairs that had clean, comfortable beds in them, with heirloom pillowcases, most elaborately and tastefully embroidered by hand. Such rooms and beds and embroidered linen are as frequent in German village inns as they are rare in ours. Our villages are superior to German villages, in more merits, excellences, conveniences, and privileges than I can enumerate. But the hotels do not belong on that list. The naturalist tavern was not a meaningless name for all the halls and all the rooms were lined with large glass cases which were filled with all sorts of birds and animals, glass-eyed, ably stuffed, and set up in the most naturally eloquent and dramatic attitudes. The moment we were abed, the rain cleared away, and the moon came out. I dozed off to sleep while contemplating a great white stuffed owl, which was looking intently down at me from a high perch, with the air of a person who thought he had met me before, but could not make out for certain. Young Z did not get off so easily. He said, as he was sinking deliciously to sleep, the moon lifted away the shadows and developed a huge cat on a bracket. Dead and stuffed, but crouching with every muscle tense for a spring, and with its glittery eyes aimed straight at him. It made Zee uncomfortable. He tried closing his own eyes, but that did not answer, for a natural instinct kept making him open them again to see if the cat was still getting ready to launch at him, which of course she always was. He tried turning his back, but that was a failure. He knew the sinister eyes were on him still. So at last he had to get up, after an hour or two of worried and experiment, and set the cat out in the hall, so he won that time. Chapter 18: The Kindly Courtesy of Germans. In the morning, we took breakfast in the garden under the trees, in the delightful German summer fashion. The air was filled with the fragrance of flowers and wild animals, the living portion of the menagerie of the naturalist tavern was all about us. There were great cages, populous with fluttering and chattering foreign birds, and other great cages and greater wire pens, populous with quadrupeds both native and foreign. There were some free creatures, too, and quite sociable ones they were. White rabbits were loping about the place, and occasionally came and sniffed at our shoes and shins. A fawn with a red ribbon on his neck walked up and examined us fearlessly. Rare breeds of chickens and doves begged for crumbs, and a poor old tailless raven hopped about with a humble, shame-faced mien which said, Please do not notice my exposure. Think how you would feel in my circumstances and be charitable. If he was observed too much, he would retire behind something and stay there until he judged the party's interest had found another object. I never have seen another dumb creature that was so morbidly sensitive. Bayard Taylor, who could interpret the dim reasonings of animals, and understood their moral natures better than most men, would have found some way to make this poor old chap forget his troubles for a while. But we have not his kindly art, and so had to leave the raven to his griefs. After breakfast we climbed the hill and visited the ancient castle of Hirschhorn. And the ruined church near it. There were some curious old bas reliefs leaning against the inner walls of the church. Sculpted lords of Hirschhorn in complete armor, and the ladies of Hirschhorn in the picturesque court costumes of the Middle Ages. These things are suffering damage and passing to decay, for the last Hirschhorn has been dead two hundred years, and there is nobody now who cares to preserve the family relics. In the chancel was a twisted stone column, and the captain told us a legend about it, of course, for in the matter of legend he could not seem to restrain himself. But I do not repeat his tale, because there is no plausible thing about it, except that the hero wrenched this column into its present screw shape with his hands, just one single wrench, and all the rest of the legend was doubtful but Hirshhorn is best seen from a distance down the river. Then the clustered brown towers, perched on the green hilltop of the old battlemented stone wall, stretching up and over the grassy ridge and disappearing in the Levy Sea beyond, make a picture whose grace and beauty entirely satisfy the eye. We descended from the church by steep stone stairways, which Curved this way and that down narrow alleys between the packed and dirty tenements of the village. It was a quarter well-stocked with deformed, leering, unkempt, and uncombed idiots who held out hands or caps and begged piteously. The people of the quarter were not all idiots, of course, but all that begged seemed to be and were said to be. I was thinking of going by skiff to the next town. Neckar Steinnach, so I ran to the riverside in advance of the party and asked a man there if he had a boat to hire. I suppose I must have spoken High German, Court German. I intended for it to be anyway, so he did not understand me. I turned and twisted my question around and about, trying to strike that man's average, but failed. He could not make out what I wanted. Now Mr. X arrived." faced the same man, looked him in the eye, and emptied this sentence on him in the most glib and confident way. Can man-boat get here? The mariner promptly understood and promptly answered. I can comprehend why he was able to understand that particular sentence, because by mere accident all the words in it except get have the same sound and the same meaning in German that they have in English but how he managed to understand Mr. X's next remark puzzled me. I will insert it presently. X turned away a moment, and I asked the mariner if he could not find a board and so construct an additional seat. I spoke in the purest German, but I might as well have spoken in the purest Choctaw for all the good it did. The man tried his best to understand me. He tried and kept on trying harder and harder until I saw it was really of no use and said— "'Don't strain yourself there. It's of no consequence.' Then X turned to him and crisply said, "'Mockin' see a flat board?' I wish my epitaph may tell the truth about me if the man did not answer at once and say he would go and borrow a board as soon as he had lit the pipe which he was filling. We changed our mind about taking a boat so we did not have to go. I have given Mr. X's two remarks just as he made them. Four of the five words of the first one were English, and that they were also German was only accidental, not intentional. Three out of the five words of the second remark were English, and English only, and the two German ones did not mean anything in particular in this connection. X always spoke English to Germans, but his plan was to turn the sentence wrong in first and upside down, according to German construction, and sprinkle in a German word without any essential meaning to it here and there. Yet he always made himself understood. He could make those dialect-speaking rapsmen understand him. Sometimes, when even young Z had failed with them, and young Z was a pretty good German scholar. For one thing, X always spoke with such confidence, perhaps that helped. And possibly the rapsman's dialect was such that it was called Plattdeutsch, and so they found his English more familiar to their ears than another man's German. Quite indifferent students of in German can read Fritz Reuter's charming platt deutsch tales with some little facility because many of the words are in English. I suppose this is the tongue which our Saxon ancestors carried to England with them. By and by I will inquire of some other philologist. However, "'In the meantime it had transpired that the men employed to caulk the raft "'had found that the leak was not a leak at all, but a crack between the logs, "'a crack that belonged there, and was not dangerous, "'but had been magnified into a leak by the disordered imagination of the mate. "'Therefore we went aboard again with a good degree of confidence "'and presently got to sea without accident. "'As we swam smoothly along, between the enchanting shores, we fell to swapping notes about manners and customs in Germany and elsewhere. As I write now many months later, I perceive that each of us, by observing and noting and inquiring diligently and day by day, had managed to lay in a most varied and opulent stock of misinformation. But this is not surprising; it is very difficult to get accurate details in any country, for example. I had the idea once in Heidelberg to find out all about those five-student corps. I started with the white Whitecap Corps. I began to inquire of this, and that, and the other citizen, and here is what I found out. One, it is called the Prussian Corps, because none but Prussians are admitted to it. Two, it's called the Prussian Corps for no particular reason. It has simply pleased each corps to name itself after some German state. 3. It is not named the Prussian Corps at all, but only the White Cap Corps. 4. Any student can belong to it who is German by birth. 5. Any student can belong to it who is European by birth. 6. Any European-born student can belong to it, except if he be a Frenchman. 7. Any student can belong to it no matter where he was born. 8. No student can belong to it who is not of noble blood. 9. No student can belong to it who cannot show three full generations of noble descent. 10. Nobility is not a necessary qualification. 11. No moneyless student can belong to it. 12. Money qualification is nonsense. Such a thing has never been thought of. I got some of this information from the students themselves, students who did not belong to the Corps. I finally went to the headquarters, to the Whitecaps, where I would have gone in the first place if I had been acquainted, but even at headquarters I found difficulties. I perceived that there were things about the Whitecap Corps which one member knew and another one didn't. It was natural, for very few members of any organization know all that can be known about it. I doubt there is a man or woman in Heidelberg who would not answer promptly and confidently three out of every five questions about the white cap corps which a stranger might ask. Yet it is very safe to bet that two of the three answers would be incorrect every time. There is one German custom which is universal, the bowing courteously to strangers when sitting down at table or rising up. This bow startles a stranger out of his self-possession, the first time it occurs, and he is likely to fall over a chair or something in his embarrassment, but it pleases him nonetheless. One soon learns to expect this bow and be on the lookout and ready to return it, but to learn to lead off and make the initial bows oneself is a difficult matter for a diffident man. One thinks... If I rise and go and tender my bow, and these ladies and gentlemen take it into their heads to ignore the custom of their nation and not return it, how shall I feel, in case I survive to feel anything? Therefore he is afraid to venture. He sits out the dinner and makes the strangers rise first and originate the bowing. The hot dinner is a tedious affair for a man who seldom touches anything after the first three courses. Therefore, I used to do some pretty dreary waiting because of my fears. It took me months to assure myself that those fears were groundless. But I did assure myself at last by experimenting diligently through my agent. I made Harris get up and bow and leave. Invariably, his bow was returned. Then I got up and bowed myself and retired. Thus my education proceeded easily and comfortably for me, but not for Harris. Three courses of a table to hot dinner were enough for me, but Harris preferred all thirteen. Even after I had acquired full confidence and had no longer needed the agent's help, I sometimes encountered difficulties. Once at Baden-Baden I nearly lost a train because I could not be sure the three young ladies opposite me at the table were Germans, since I had not heard them speak. They might have been American. They might have been English. It was not safe to venture a bow, but just as I had got that far with my thought, one of them began a German remark, to my great relief and gratitude. And before she got out her third word, our bows were delivered and graciously returned, and we were out of there. There is a friendly something about the German character which is very winning. When Harris and I were making a pedestrian tour through the Black Forest, We stopped at a little country inn for dinner one day. Two young ladies and a young gentleman entered and sat down opposite us. They were pedestrians too. Our knapsacks were strapped upon our backs, but they had a sturdy youth along to carry theirs for them. All parties were hungry, so there was no talking. By and by the usual bows were exchanged, and we separated. As we sat at a late breakfast in the hotel at Erlerheiligen the next morning, These young people entered and took places near us without observing us. But presently they saw us, and at once bowed and smiled, not ceremoniously, but with the gratified look of people who have found acquaintances where they were expecting strangers. Then they spoke of the weather and the roads. We also spoke of the weather and the roads. Next they said they had had an enjoyable walk, notwithstanding the weather. We said that that had been our case too. Then they said that they had walked 30 English miles the day before and asked how many we had walked. I could not lie, so I told Harris to do it. Harris told them that we had made 30 English miles, too. That was true, we had made them, though we had little assistance here and there. After breakfast, they found us trying to blast some information out of the dumb hotel clerk about routes, and observing that we were not succeeding pretty well. They went and got their maps and things, and pointed out and explained our course so clearly that even a New York detective could have followed it. And when we started out, they spoke out a hearty goodbye and wished us a pleasant journey. Perhaps they were more generous with us than they might have been with native wayfarers, because we were forlorn and in a strange land. I don't know. I only know it was lovely to be treated like that. So I took an American young lady to one of the fine balls in Baden-Baden one Night, and at the entrance door upstairs we were halted by an official. Something about Miss Jones's dress was not according to rule. I don't remember what it was now. Something was wanting, her back hair, or a shawl, or a fan, or a shovel, something. The official was ever so polite and ever so sorry, but the rule was strict, and he could not let us in. It was very embarrassing, for many eyes were on us. But now a richly dressed girl stepped out of the ballroom and inquired into the trouble, and said she could fix it in a moment. She took Miss Jones to the robing room, and soon brought her back in regulation trim. Then we entered the ballroom with this benefactress unchallenged. Being safe now, I began to puzzle through my sincere but ungrammatical thanks to the woman, When there was a sudden mutual recognition. The benefactress and I had met at Allerheiligen. Two weeks had not altered her good face, and plainly her heart was in the right place yet. But there was such a difference between these clothes and the last clothes I had seen her in before, when she was walking thirty miles a day in the Black Forest, that it was quite natural I failed to recognize her sooner. I had on my other suit, too, but my German would betray me to a person who had heard it once anyway. She brought over her brother and sister, and they made our way smooth for that evening. Well, months afterwards, I was driving through the streets of Munich in a cab with a German lady one day, when she said, There is Prince Ludwig and his wife, walking along there. Everybody was bowing to them. Capmen, little children, and everybody else. "'And they were returning all the bows "'and overlooking nobody "'when a young lady met them "'and made a deep curtsy. "'That is probably one of the ladies of the court,' "'said my German friend. "'And I said, "'She is an honor to it then. "'I know her. "'I don't know her name, but I know her. "'I have known her at Allerheiligen "'and at Baden-Baden, "'and she ought to be an empress.' but she may only be a duchess. It is the way things go in this way. If one asks a German a civil question, he will be quite sure to get a civil answer. If you stop a German in the street and ask him to direct you to a certain place, he shows no sign of feeling offended. If the place be difficult to find, ten to one the man will drop his own matters and go with you and show you. In London, too, many a time strangers have walked several blocks with me to show me my way. There is something very real about this sort of politeness. Quite often in Germany, shopkeepers who could not furnish me an article I wanted have sent one of their employees with me to show me a place where it could be had.